Hey everybody, this is Richard Deitch and welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. My producer as always is Lou Pellegrino. Two guests this week, two really interesting conversations. First up is ESPN's Laura Rutledge. She is a reporter and host for ESPN. Um, you have, If you're uh, a watcher of ESPN, you have seen her in a number of roles from uh, major college football games on the sidelines to the host of the SEC Network. She's now a regular on Get Up as well as on the Paul Feinbaum Show and uh, we had uh, what I thought was a really interesting conversation on her career, and I think you'll be surprised at some of the things she uh, did prior to getting to ESPN. Following Laura Rutledge is Kevin Clark. He is an NFL writer and podcaster for The Ringer, previously worked for The Wall Street Journal. Kevin Clark just does pieces that um, they're quirky and different and NFL writing that, in my opinion, you're just not seeing elsewhere. So we got into a discussion on how Kevin finds his – his pieces and or his subjects, and also the difference of working for The Ringer versus The Wall Street Journal, two very different publications, two places uh, uh, in different parts of the world as well, Los Angeles, California, and New York City. So Laura Rutledge first, and then Kevin Clark coming up on the Sports Media Podcast. Laura Rutledge is a reporter and host for ESPN in a number of roles, including working as a reporter on college football, basketball, gymnastics, baseball, and softball. You also saw her this year do uh, Monday Night Football, Jets-Lions, and we'll get into that. She is the host of the SEC Network's SEC Nation. She is also a co-host of Get Up. She's a regular on the Paul Feinbaum Show. I believe she's hosted SportsCenter. Uh, we're getting into Stephen A. Smith territory in terms of someone who's getting a lot of different jobs at ESPN. And Laura... Laura Rutledge joins us on the Sports Media Podcast. Laura, thanks uh, for coming on today. Thank you for having me. I, I really appreciate it. Big fan of the podcast for many years, so cool moment for me. <laughs> yeah, way to read off the prompter, Laura. That was nice of you to say. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's all I don't usually do, but I started it right now for your podcast. <laughs> so you are in the rare position. This is where I want to start. You're in the rare position at ESPN that you have multiple options in terms of where you want to go with this with this company, with this network. You recently signed a contract extension. That's always good. And you have assignments as a reporter on major college football broadcasts. You have a pretty nice hosting job on the SEC network on, you know, I would argue their signature show or one of their signature shows. You're now part of a you're now a regular part of the get up rotation, which obviously is a very important investment for ESPN. And, you know, you also do other stuff like Feinbaum Show, et cetera. So do you have an idea of where you hope to be in a couple years with ESPN? Or are you someone who you, – you enjoy this. You enjoy the sort of many different kinds of things you're doing at ESPN. Yeah, it's so funny because uh, even when you were listing off the, the different roles, as I, as I hear you say them – it's hard for me to think about eliminating any of it. I, I truly do love all of it, and, and that's not just lip service. I, I I wouldn't be doing it if I didn't love all of it. I, I think some people think, oh, well, you must be assigned all these things, and, and that's partly true, but a lot of it's been that I've just made myself available and said, you know, hey, whatever comes around, let me make sure that I can do it. And, and to ESPN's credit, they've given me opportunities to try all these different things. So um, when I look at my role, you know, what I would like to see over the next couple of years, it, it's really just a, 
some sort of combination of all those things and, and getting opportunities on the biggest events, which for me, as somebody who, you know, started at this company in 2014, started with the SEC network on a, a very minimal contract, I was basically signed up to do 12 football games. And, you know, when I look back at that, say, I can't even believe that I'm getting a chance to do any of this stuff. So for me, there's still, I, I'm still in this stage and I hope to actually stay in this stage forever of just being kind of surprised, but also very grateful for anything that's coming my way. You, the, I think one of the things that, um, one, there's, there are people who listen to this podcast who are young, who are either at the start of their career or maybe college students who, you know, hope to get to where you are. And so I try to ask like process questions sometimes or questions where people can sort of learn something about the craft. So for you, and you could go as long as you want on this, in terms of preparation and process, what's the difference for you when you work in the studio versus when you're working remote on assignment? Yeah, you know, I, I think um, one of the things that, that really surprised me is that they're actually similar. I, I tried to make them too different, and I think it actually led to struggles early on when I was given hosting opportunities at ESPN. I actually started hosting SEC Now, which was I, – I took Maria Taylor's job when she moved up to bigger and better things, and um, I was given an opportunity to host SEC Now. And I look back at that tape and realized that I was way too mechanical, and I was trying to hit a certain mark and, and read teleprompter and all these things. And once I decided to just sort of approach everything the same way, which is basically coming in with an extensive amount of knowledge and preparation on the front end so that once I'm actually broadcasting – I'm just free to talk. That sort of overall philosophy applied to whether it's work in the field, whether it's work in the studio, whether it's work on radio, podcast, whatever it may be, using that overall philosophy almost freed me up. It, it was like this great weight that was lifted off my shoulders of, okay, I don't have to actually conform to these sort of norms. And obviously you have to hit breaks and you have to follow instructions. And I'm not saying I'm some sort of rogue studio host, but I do think that, that taking what made things work out in the field, which was just sort of off the top of my head. I mean, everything's off the cuff when you're in the field. There's no opportunity to sort of look at a paper really. And, and I don't, I just say, you know, whatever it is, I'm going to maybe write a quick note and then internalize it and regurgitate it very quickly after that. Um, with a little bit more personality and conversational style. And so I think taking that as, as a formula, and it's almost a weird way to call it a formula because it's not. It's just sort of willy-nilly, for lack of a better term, uh, has, has really led to success in both realms. How much, um, how much was being on the SEC network, uh, again, an important network for ESPN, but not ESPN or ESPN2, how much did that help you in terms of getting reps and maybe figuring out what worked for you as a host before you got opportunities at ESPN, either on GetUp or SportsCenter, et cetera? Yeah, it was so helpful. And I look back and just think about, you know, all the people who had to work with me as a very young and green studio host. And, you know, guys like Joe Disney, Brad Buchanan, Pete Waters, all these people that you know, we're part of the SEC network and still are there. And, and Joe Disney is actually still the producer for SEC Nation. No relation to Walt Disney, by the way. A lot of people think that <laughs> he may be uh, some sort of, 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 of random coincidence. 
Oakland, especially knowing that Disney owns ESPN. But anyway, uh, those guys were, were very patient with me. And just even learning the mechanics of the ENPS system again, I, I had studied it in college, but I hadn't hosted studio shows in, in years, really ever. Uh, so being in that realm and having to learn how to do all that, they were very patient with me. And I think what, what I learned the most about, I mean, there are some nitty gritty things that I look back and say, okay, you know, that, that learning how to write teases properly and learning how to operate in, in studio and just learning some of the terminology that's used that I just wasn't as familiar with because most of what I had done had been in the field. I, I think the main thing that I learned from all that time was what to what to ignore and what to not get frustrated about. And it sounds weird, but I was always, and, and still am, very hard on myself, very critical about things. And, you know, I would miss one word here or there and get very frustrated with myself and find that I couldn't really bounce back from it. And it would affect me for the rest of the night. It would affect me for the rest of the show. It would affect how I talked to people, how I handled the analysts and studio, all of that. And, and I just... Hmm finally realized you know, this does me no good i have to figure out how to have a, a better way of letting this roll off my back and and not get frustrated by it and i, I just appreciate those guys and just kind of the whole environment there in charlotte for giving me that and, and giving me the ability to bounce back when things didn't go as planned because it's live tv at the end of the day you just can't you can't sit there and be too critical on yourself and i think actually what, one of the things that's ironic about all of it is the things that used to scare me which were making mistakes or having you know, almost a blooper on TV, that's actually opened a lot of doors for me and, and kind of become something that I, I wouldn't say I'm necessarily proud of, but it's just like part of what I do is a lot of times there's going to be a blooper involved and, and I just had to embrace it. How did, uh, you know, I think as anybody who's listening to this podcast knows, ESPN uh, started off with Get Up with Mike Greenberg, Michelle Beadle, Jalen Rose, uh, their ratings challenges uh, have been chronicled uh, ad infinitum. They make changes uh, a couple months ago to, uh, you know, the sort of the rotation, including Michelle Beto heading out to Los Angeles, just focusing in on the NBA. So you then become, I think, uh, not I think, you become more part of this show. How does that happen? How does ESPN management do they approach you directly they approach your agent but how do you become more of a regular on get up yeah it's it's a fascinating story actually and i think uh greeny and i always talk about you know just just how all of it went down and sort of laughed but um I, I had hosted a good bit of sports center starting around this time last year, actually. And the way that that happened was kind of funny. I was on a plane coming back from the national championship, the college football playoff national championship. And Norby Williamson was just close by me on the plane and said, Hey, how do you feel about hosting some sports centers? I said, sure. You know, I, I'm, I'd love to. So that was like as simple as it was. And I got an email maybe a few weeks or even a few days later that said, Hey, we want to sign you up for some sports centers. So into that world that way and and through that uh was contacted over the summer by the talent office at espn they just said hey you know what do you think about maybe try and get up and and this was when uh, michelle beetle was taking some time off and she was you know rightfully so having having a little bit of vacation time so there was an opportunity there to get in there and i knew that maria taylor was also going to be doing it maria and i are good friends so we were kind of like yeah let's try it out and see what happens there were a few times actually over the summer where greeny took a much needed vacation and i even solo hosted the show um cassidy hubbard did that as well so what it was was i thought just a 
more experience for me. I, I honestly was just thankful because I thought this is, this is totally different in a lot of ways. And especially at that point, it was very different from SportsCenter. Uh, but the funny thing about the whole process was that I guess it was last August, so August of 2017, if I'm getting the years correctly, or maybe 2018. Anyway, um, no, it would have been 2017. Either way, I go to New York <laughs> because – I had been contacted by Bill Wolf, who, of course, was the original, um, you know, executive producer on the show and all that. And so I was just going for like just a familiarity meeting. Basically, he was maybe told by somebody, hey, you know, keep your eye on this person. And when we talked through the show, when we talked to Bill, he, he told me the concept. He told me everything about it. And we sort of had this long meeting. It was like a two hour meeting. I, I'm a big fan of Bill's. I think he's a, a very creative person and uh, I appreciated him giving me that time. And so we sort of talked through it and, and he was very honest with me. He said, you're probably too young for this show. Um, at the time I was, I guess it would have been 29, 28, 29. Um, and, and so I said, okay, that's cool. You know, I get it. And, and I'm going to continue working on things and see if maybe I could still in or, or maybe even be a part of the show from a college football standpoint. So it's just funny because <laughs> that was sort of how I thought about the show. When I got a chance to, to even just fill in on it, I thought, well, you know, I'll remember that I had sort of been told I was too young. And, and so I was trying in the beginning, I think, to prove myself a lot, which was not always the right way to go about it. But, um, you know, Mike Greenberg is, is somebody who I have such immense respect for. And I had always, I never thought I'd even have a chance to meet him. So I think it's funny the way that the get up thing has morphed, because at the time when I first started doing it, I really was just, just, I mean, I couldn't have been more out of my element or more uh, just in, in a world that I didn't even totally understand. And, and I think, when I look back on that time and just sort of see the growth, you know, it, it's been an honor to be able to sit next to Greeny and all these people who have come through the show. And it really has been fun. And, and look, we're aware of some of the challenges that were there in the beginning. And we're always trying to, to work through things and, you know, get to a point where we walk away feeling very proud of the show. And I think at the end of the day, like, when we watch it and when we when we think about it, there's just a lot of work that's put into it. And that doesn't always mean that it's coming across in a way that people are loving it. And there's certainly room for improvement every day. But that's something that's always stuck with me is just the amount of work that's put in from everybody, the amount of dedication that's been put in. I think sometimes that's missed, you know, on the other side of the screen. I mean, do you feel that much more prepared and brighter from at thirty years old than twenty nine? I mean, is this is the thirteen <laughs> exactly. has the, have the have those months made now, a gigantic right? difference? <laughs> yeah. uh, I, I, definitely. When I turned thirty, I felt you know a big switch of the flip, and suddenly I felt like an old sage. <laughs> I was ready to go. <laughs> one one more question on that: Do you um at least conceptually do you think there is a place for a morning show on an ESPN where people will come in and opt for that given that you can make the argument I think it's a legit argument it's the most competitive time slot on over-the-air television because you're not only competing against the traditional morning shows like Good Morning America Today CBS etc you're competing against cable news in a very polarized politicized time Uh, but ESPN at least for the moment seems in at least on this concept and on this show if you could take yourself out of the show, do you have confidence that this kind of show is something that can last for a long time? Yeah, you know, I do. And and to your point, it is obviously a competitive climate. It's just the way that, 
you know, like totally taking myself out of it. I think the way that it's approached from a business standpoint is that, you know, at least for the time being, and that's the immediate to maybe even five-year future, my guess is that ESPN looks at the year-to-year ratings. So if the ratings continue to go up and they're looking for a certain number or they're at least comparatively up, that's going to be something that everyone's going to say, hey, why not? You know, if this is if this is doing better than what was here before, we're going to keep doing it and keep trying it. And I do think that, that there's a commitment to it. But there's also an understanding that maybe it's not going to be, you know, if it turns into some sort of magic that then all of a sudden becomes a destination for people as a morning show, then great. But I don't think that there's this big desire to compete with the Good Morning Americas of the world and all the shows that that you mentioned. I, I think, if anything, it's more like, hey, this is this is catered. This is like if you're, you know, somebody who likes eggs, you know, maybe you have your eggs like over, over medium some days, maybe you haven't scrambled. No, this is the person that wants them poached to a certain uh, standard every day. And that's what they're looking for. And that's, that's what a morning show on ESPN is essentially, because it's going to be sports focused. It's going to get you updated on everything that you need to know that maybe you missed last night because you had to go to bed earlier or whatever it may be. So however that mantra or that that philosophy evolves and and I think it evolves through get up I think that's sort of the formula but then it will change in many ways and it already has I think that's more what actually could work and and I don't think that's a pie in the sky type thing because as I you know spend a lot of time out in the field I run into all kinds of people who, you know, at the end of the day, they're asking me about get up. They're, they're talking about, hey, now, you know what, I, I turn the show on and, and watch it every day. And I will be honest, for a while, a lot of the, the feedback that I would get, you know, just from random fans was not that good. And it, it was like, hey, you know, I don't watch that show. What are you doing? Why are you on that show? And, and then now there really has been a shift where more and more people come up to me and say, that's my morning viewing. That's what I do. Now, understanding in all that, that this is a microcosm of society because it's your average sports fan. What um, What is your commitment to that show in terms of um, the amount of uh, – uh, do you have a certain amount of days, weeks, years that you've committed? Or is it to the – or is it really just about whatever ESPN management decides with you you're going to do in terms of you being part of that rotation? Yeah, I think it's more the latter. Um, And, you know, basically, like during basketball season, Maria Taylor and I just sort of say, what what does our schedule look like? What do our schedules look like? And she's on mostly Saturday games. I'm on Tuesday games. I do the Super Tuesday package on ESPN. So um, I'll be in New York Thursday, Friday. Now, like, for instance, during Super Bowl week, it was important, I felt, to be there the entire week and that following Monday. So I'll be there more that week. It's it's dependent, I think, upon, you know, certain events and just our availability. And and they've been great about working with us. And and I think it's important to the show and important to ESPN overall for us to also be involved in live events and and still be in that world, just because it does provide a unique perspective. And and frankly, that's a world where we want to stay, you know, um, that's been kind of how it's gone. So it really is just sort of as we go month by month and, and we navigate through it. And I think the one thing through all of that is, is that the producers on the show and then also Greeny, they've been great about whoever's there. They sort of cater the show to whoever we are. They let us try new things. They let us 
um, offer up ideas. They let us be a, a very significant part of the planning of the show and the production of the show, too, which has been a lot of fun. One more thing on that, because this is sort of like the place where you can do this. Uh, I imagine you could do this a little bit on SC, uh, SEC Nation. But, you know, one of the things I think that you got, uh, if notice is the right word for, I don't know if that is the right word, but uh, I guess something that you, something you've done on that show that has gotten some pickup and some uh, viral notice would be when you discussed uh, Courtney Smith and Urban Meyer. Um, and there were people, I, I don't, I'm not sure anybody would have any issues as to what you said about Courtney Smith, but there were certainly some people who um, were critical of you, your commentary on Urban Meyer saying that at least maybe they thought you were too um, supportive, complimentary, etc. Rather than getting into the specifics of what you said, I'm more interested in um, how that comes up. Like, you're in, you, you know your college football, it's obviously sort of a part of of um of who you are but do you make it known to producers that hey i have you know i'd like to get 90 seconds a minute 20 on courtney smith or an urban meyer how does on a show like that or even on a show like sc nation how does it come up when there's something you want to say but what you have to say actually could turn out to be a story and could be sort of larger for espn um you know, good or bad. That's a very long-winded, not great question. But you know what I'm getting at? You saying yeah. something about Urban Meyer on Get Up is going to – that's people in the company outside of Get Up are going to take notice just given it is a hot-button subject. Yeah, so it's a great question because I think there's a, there are a lot of people who probably assume that it's more planned than it actually is. Um, you know, specifically the, and, you know, like you said, we don't have to rehash everything that was said, but specifically the day when I commented on Courtney Smith and, and domestic violence, that story had broken the night before and, and really kind of the day before. So we were coming on the air and, and that next day, and I had put a lot of thought in that day before to how to frame what I wanted to say just in the, the world of being aware of domestic violence and, and what it truly is. Because I do, I do believe that as a society, we are not as aware and don't have the facts of, of what may be domestic violence. And, and I felt that would be very important to get out there. So I actually consulted a few people who I know who are very well versed in that world just to get their opinions, get varying opinions from many sides, also reached out to Ohio State and my connections there to see if I could get a comment from them, uh, which I didn't, which is understandable based on what was going on. So that was very planned. That was very much, hey, let's make sure that we're doing this the right way. They gave me the platform, gave me the time to say what was needed. And then, you know, we continued the discussion throughout the show. But every discussion that we allot time for, and this is true with really a lot of these shows, we say, you know, we think this may be about a three-minute discussion. So that's, that's allotted in the rundown. And, and then if it goes longer, then something else has to be cut. And, and it is sort of that organic um, moving piece throughout a show is, is you do have things that you're just going to have to cut. And that's why I think producers' jobs are harder than people realize because they're trying to figure out the timing throughout. Uh, but then, you know, other situations like the day when Urban Meyer stepped down when he resigned, Greeny and I had, we're sitting there on the set 
And all of a sudden, these news alerts start coming through. And it was like 7.45 a.m. Eastern time, I believe, sometime around that. And we just said, okay, there goes our entire show. Obviously, the entirety of what we're talking about today is all Urban Meyer. And it became a frantic, How? who can we get on the show? Who can we call? We're going to give you the news. We're going to go through it. And, and we really went through a lot of news before we even commented on anything. Uh, because at that point, we were just waiting for more information to come out. We were waiting for more uh, news and, and more comments from our analysts and people like that who we had on the phone. So it just depends on the day. But, but I do think that um, what is a common misconception is that it's very planned. Most of the time, it's not. Most of the time, it's, you know, we're in our morning meeting and we're saying, hey, I, I will have something to say on that. Here's a basic gist of what it is in case you need video to support it. But for the most part, it's, it's sort of here's a free range to say what you want and to, you know, to be trusted to do that. And that's something that um, I'm very appreciative that I have the opportunity to do because I think as a younger woman in this business, we need more of that. And we need more women who are given a chance to say their opinion and to give their analysis. Okay. I'm glad you said that because on the, uh, that leads me into something I did want to talk to you about. And that's kind of the issue of gender when it comes to, um, sports media. I have seen, um, a number of threads from your colleagues at ESPN, uh, and certainly one producer at get up who, um, who sort of let it be known that, and this is, uh, you know, unsurprising because I think a lot of, uh, not I think, I know how many women in the business get this, but uh, it's very specific about some of the chauvinism and sexism that you get on Twitter. And a lot of it sort of goes to like the idea of some of the stuff that's really like kind of like absurdly like, you know, from like a hundred years ago, like, you know, why is, why are women talking about sports? Why is this woman on the air? So here's where I sort of want to sort of get into what, what is that like for you on a day-to-day basis on social media? I've talked to many, many women in the business. I have a sense of how bad it is for them. So let's specific for you. Um, what, what is that like in relation to sexism, chauvinism that you face? Yeah. You know, it's so tough for me to, to really, put some sort of label on it. And, and it's a, it's something that it really bothers me, but not in the sense of it bothers me that people are saying stuff to me or about me. And, and to be totally honest, it did used to really bother me. Like I would say even as recently as a year ago or a year and a half ago, I would sort of think to myself, man, that person told me that I have no business talking about football. I, I should go back in the kitchen. I should go make a sandwich. Maybe they're right. You know, and that little Angling of doubt would start to creep in, and I would find that it would affect me as much as I would try to fight it mentally. Um, and then there was some sort of shift that sort of happened, and I, I think it happened actually around this time last year when I was hosting Sports Center, and I was getting more of that than I, I was used to, honestly. <laughs> and I just had to sort of make a fight or flight decision: either I'm going to let this affect me, or I have to stop. I have to just even stop looking at it. So a lot of times I don't look at it, um, and, and I'll just do everything I can to to not have anything to do with it. One interesting thing that I think is is something that really bothers me the most is when I see people commenting about other women and, and even a lot of times they're my colleagues or just other women that I respect in the business 
that really bothers me. And that's where it sort of makes my blood boil. And I want to, I'm always fighting the urge to fire back at people. And, and that's the hard part. You want to say something back. You want to defend yourself. But, you know, at some point that becomes annoying to people too. And, and that just makes it look like it's affecting you too much. So I think that, I think what I found is if for every one of these people who's saying what they're saying, there's probably three other people who have been very complimentary. And, and I think you just have to focus on small progress that, that we're making as women. And, and I've never been somebody who's been like, oh, man, you know, I'm a woman in sports media, so everything's hard for me. Because really, I do think if, if you come into every situation with so much knowledge and you handle yourself professionally, you will be successful and, and you will have you know, a lot of things to point to to say, this worked out well for me, no matter if I'm a woman or a man. Um, but but I do think that what we are running into is that it's it's just seemingly acceptable on social media. And at the end of the day, many of these people are going to say these things to your face. So um, what I find more to my face is that people say, oh, I really want to hear your opinion on this. I want to know what you think about this offensive line versus that defensive line. And I'll give them an answer. And, and, and we continue to have that great commentary, which for me most of the time outweighs the other stuff. And and you referenced a thread uh, the other day, Nick Putz, one of the producers on, on Get Up. Right. I actually hadn't even seen the tweet that he was responding to, but you know, somebody wrote that, I was just eye candy on Get Up, and I hadn't said anything for 20 minutes. And I, you know, why were they paying me? Which is funny because I, I'm not getting paid any extra to do this show. I enjoy doing the show, but I'm not getting paid for it. So people hmm. should wow. you know, that, leave that out of it, right? And the other part of it was. Nick went through, you know, the whole line of all the things that I had done in the show. And, and it actually, I don't usually get emotional about these things, but it actually made me emotional reading his tweets because he did not have to do that. You know, we, we didn't talk about it. It wasn't like I said, oh, man, I'm so bothered by this person on Twitter. I haven't even seen the tweet. Uh, and he took the initiative to do that. So I think that's more what I focused on, and that's the best way to approach it. But like I said, I really do get frustrated when people come after my female colleagues who I respect so much. Uh, wow, we made some news here, Laura. You're not getting paid for Get Up. That's, uh, <laughs> well, I, I, paid, I, I've, so. <laughs> <laughs> you're getting paid by ESPN, <laughs> but not uh, that. Yeah. not extra. Exactly. All right. So, But this is – I do. You, you brought something up here, and I do um, want to ask you about it. Um, because it's, uh, I don't want to say it's sort of unique to you, but it is is—it is sort of something that many women in the business face. Um, anyone who reads your bio knows you are a former Miss Florida. You worked, uh, you, you were part of pageants. And so that world obviously brings some fame and opportunities and a lot of positive stuff. And um, at the same time, and I realize this is not racism or ageism, but I wonder how much of a prejudice within the sports world you have gotten uh, because of how you look, or maybe like the better way to phrase it is because of how someone perceives how you look, because someone perceives that someone who is a Miss Florida um, is only on uh, ESPN because of her appearance and, and nothing else. That would be unique to you because of your own sort of unique background. And I wonder... You know, I'm just, I'd be curious just sort of how you view that. Um, you've clearly experienced it. Has it gotten any better as you've gotten a little bit older? What has that been like? Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's a really interesting question because I think, um, 
at the end of the day, there are so many stereotypes that we just have in society. And uh, just quickly on the, the pageant world, I actually got signed up for pageants accidentally when I was in college because I needed some extra money to pay for some classes. And the Miss America organization is the largest provider of scholarships to women in the world. So somebody was like, you can make extra money this way. And then my friend signed me up almost as a joke. And that was sort of how I got into that world. And and I realized as I was doing it that, you know, at the time in college at the University of Florida, I was only doing radio. I did not want to be on TV. I wanted to write and I wanted to be on the radio. Um, but as I started to do the interview process for, for the pageant world and uh, for Miss Florida, I realized this is a great uh, way to practice for what I may want to do. And so I used it for that and then also enjoyed the community service aspect and enjoyed you know, sort of the, the world that I never imagined being launched into. And, and I embraced it and it was fun and different. And at the time, you know, I, I thought, how will this affect my career going forward? I, I really did wonder about it. And then once I won Miss Florida, I was still reporting for Fox Sports Florida at the time. I was the Tampa Bay Rays reporter and then got a job as the San Diego Padres reporter that year. So I was flying back and forth between San Diego and Florida to do my community service. You're basically a community servant for the state for an entire year. So to do that and then also to do my job. And so my, my path was always unconventional throughout. And it, it, it just was a product of what it was. And and I once I was done with Miss Florida, once I, I gave up the crown and you know moved on to the next thing, I was very at first embarrassed by it, and I, I tried to hide you know the the pictures that are out there. I tried to I thought this is going to be the the biggest credibility killer that I could ever have, and and what am I going to do? Um, and there are probably still some days where you know maybe somebody looks that up and they use it against me, but w what I found is that. Through time and through just frankly having to prove myself, which I don't get mad at, you know, that's just part of what it is. I'm going to have to prove myself more than, you know, a Marcus Spears or um, a Dan Orlovsky or whoever it may be who, who has played the sport and who has a different type of credibility than I'll have. I just embraced that and said, okay, this is what it's going to be. Um, there are many times, though. To the other part of your question, where I do think that people judge a book by a cover, and it actually just motivates me further. I've found that that gives me more fire than anything else, uh, just knowing that there are people that doubt me. And the second I walk in a room, they're going to think, well, she doesn't know anything. And it's happened in coaches meetings with college football coaches. It's happened in meetings with college baseball coaches. It's happened when I was covering major league baseball, you know, whatever it may be, it's happened along the way. And then I think most people, if you pulled them after the fact would say, okay, she actually knew what she was talking about. She's prepared. She knows the game. She understands the game. Um, and then if they don't, then honestly, I'm never going to change their mind anyway, so I might as well move on. And I think that's the best philosophy to have. But there are so many times where I think if I ever have a daughter, I'm not sure that I would want her to be in this business. And, and that's not complaining, but it just, it's just a fact. It's, it's very tough in many ways uh, for all the reasons that you mentioned. Yeah, I appreciate that answer, and you're right. It's um, you know, every job has its own thing, but uh, sports broadcasting is a very uniquely subjective thing, and a lot of times the subjectivity is not based at all on merit or intellect. It's just based on uh, a singular person's sort of view of what a broadcaster should be. So, um, 
so I hear you on that. I'm not sure I I would I do have a young daughter. I'm not sure I'd want her to go to sports broadcast, <laughs> but we'll see how that yeah. uh, how that pl- how that plays out. You um you you were the sideline reporter for the Jets Lions on Monday Night Football with uh, Bob uh, Beth Mowens and Brian Greasy. And so obviously, you know, getting getting to be in an NFL broadcast is a huge, huge thing, even with your resume as someone who's done uh, significant college football games. I did want to ask you, though, what, um, having gone through that experience, what what was unique about it in relation to college? You, you have been in many coaches' uh, production meetings, I'm sure, in the SEC with obviously very, you know, well-known people, the Sabins of the world, et cetera. And now you had this opportunity to sort of be part of the NFL world. Um, so I'd be curious about what maybe were the differences for you and if there was anything that was similar regarding your specific role on that broadcast. Yeah. Um, well, first of all, I kind of just pinch myself every time I think about even doing that broadcast. And, and I'm somebody that, you know, I think to battle the nerves and just the, the things that may come your way if you're being put in a big spotlight and you sort of think, okay, this is probably the one thing I can't mess up. Uh, getting out of that mindset is the best way, I think, to have success because if you stay in that world, you're, you're inevitably going to make a mistake or not be yourself. So at the time, I say that because at the time, I was convincing myself to use a coach-speak mantra that it was just any other game and it just really wasn't a big <laughs> deal and it just almost this self-talk of like, hey, calm down. This is not a big deal. You're fine, whatever. Um, and, and I remember sort of realizing that it was a big deal and I just couldn't fight it for the first time when we were on the field and I was actually standing there with a young woman who had gone to the University of Florida and is now the Lions reporter. Her name's Tori Petrie. And she was down there and she looked at me and she goes, you're about to report on a Monday night football game to open the season. And I was like, oh, thanks for saying that. <laughs> and Tori's somebody who, you know, I've sort of uh, mentored along the way, and I'm very happy for the way that she has gotten her career going. And, and we both kind of looked at each other, and I thought, okay, I can't ignore this anymore. It's just time to intensify focus and and really embrace what this is and just be very thankful. Um, but, but I think some of the biggest differences, and especially in the coaches' meetings, that's really where I saw them. They were so honest. And in college, I think there's always this veil over what's going on. There are definitely some coaches who are more honest than others and give you more pieces of information than others. But NFL meetings are so different. And I had actually shadowed the actual Monday Night Football crew, the new crew of Joe Tess and Jason Witten and Booger and Lisa uh, for a preseason game. So I had been in the Colts and the Ravens meeting. So I had a little taste of what it might be like and just watching Lisa work and learning from them and learning from that crew. And I was just amazed by how honest everybody was. And, and I remember walking out of the room. It's funny because Joe Tess, you know, obviously coming from the college world as well, we looked at each other and were like, can you believe everything that they told us? That was crazy. Um, and, and so that was, that was different. And then the other thing I think is just the speed of the game. Being down there on an NFL sideline, it is different. It's it's a very clean game for the most part. I think some people would uh, talk about the championship games that we had yesterday and say those were not clean from an officiating standpoint. But <laughs> the the overall consensus that I had just watching the way that the game was played at the NFL level was was that. And then the other thing too that that was cool about that game is it was Sam Darnold's first start, and there was so much around him. Uh, and I had this 
this moment before the game where I ran into his parents and I had never met them before, but they were over, over in the corner of the field. And his mom was very emotional. She almost uh, couldn't even say his name without crying. And I remember thinking as I walked away from that, okay, this really isn't all that different. So to your question about the differences, there are some, but at the end of the day, we're telling stories about athletes who people care about. And, and that's what really struck me in that moment before we started the game. And I actually um, always have wanted to thank her. I haven't been able to find her again, but I've always wanted to thank her for that because it was just a great reminder of, you know what, this isn't that different. This is, this is very special for everybody involved. And, and that's the frame of mind that you want to approach it with. All right, a couple more here, and then I will let you go. Um, can For those who will listen to this podcast who do not live in the South, you've had a unique um, yeah, sort of a unique uh, experience or prism in terms of really immersing yourself in major college Southern football culture. Uh, you went to school at the University of Florida, obviously, you know, major football, historic major football power. You're hosting SEC Nation. You're on Feinbaum's show, you know, sort of the uh, uh, the, the most famous Southern-based uh, sports talk show. Shout out to Phyllis from Mulga. I know she's not listening, but I'll give her sh- <laughs> yes. give give her sh- shout out anyway. Um, so this gives you just very unique insight to me in terms of like what college football means to so many of these towns. And I wonder, just from your experience now, really being a part of being in the middle of that um, and growing up in that, obviously, as a college student. Um, what's it like compared to, you know, when you're up north doing get up uh, or when you're covering even the Jets and Lions? It's, you know, I've been to one SEC football game in my life. It happened to be the night game at LSU against Alabama. And so I got a little sense of it, but that was only one that was time. That a good one. Yeah, you've <laughs> you've lived this. You've Yeah, you've lived this for your life. So can you put it in some kind of context in terms of what it means and how it's different than maybe like the pro sports world in the North or on the West Coast? Yeah, you know, there are so many stories that that I think I could choose to put it into context. But I I just think that the passion being the overarching theme, it's just different. I mean, I've covered Big 12. I've covered Pac-12. I've covered the ACC, I've covered the Big Ten, and yes, they all have their own brands of wonderful passion. It's what makes college football so great. But there is something just a little bit different. It's a little bit ratcheted up in the South in a certain way. And I think probably my favorite story just from the Feinbaum world and and that family of people, which I truly believe they are a family and I am randomly a part of it and they embrace me with open arms after many times of not doing that. I, I was called out for being all kinds of things, you know, to my face on live television and having to respond and sort of uh, defend myself for things that I can't change, which are basically that I'm a woman. Um, and, and so we had to go through that sort of rocky phase as a, as a family, so to speak. And then we finally got through it. And now I think there's a lot of respect that has been paid to me from all those people, which is, is wonderful. And always just I'm thankful to Paul for giving me that chance. But um when it was an unfortunate situation, but one of the callers, Tammy, who uh, yep. even had her own alert for the show, uh, but she passed away in a horrible car accident. And there were a lot of people who, you know, didn't really like Tammy's calls. They, they would criticize Tammy. They would say they would change the channel when she would come on. And she was an Auburn fan. 
And when she died, the outpouring of love for Tammy and Tammy's family and, you know, Paul and I went to the funeral the, the place was so full, we had to sit in like auxiliary seating. And he was giving part of the message at the funeral. That That's how packed it was of just people. And the amount of Feinbaum callers who showed up to that funeral, all of us, you know, were able to gather together and, and honor her and her family. And it was just one of those things where I thought, this just doesn't happen anywhere else. Like, this is what the South is, it's what football in the South is. And yes, Tammy's life and, and what happened with her has really no relation to football, but her fame had come from football and come from Feinbaum's show. And so I think that's what, what it's all about. And it's a way that you can illustrate it just by one instance. And, and it's kind of the best way to encapsulate the whole thing. But um, it's funny because uh, Greeny will always tell me, <laughs> we have a little joke where he'll tell me to like, do a fine bomb call for him. So randomly <laughs> in commercial breaks, I will do fine bomb calls and just pretend like I'm calling in to, you know, get up or whatever as a fine bomb caller. And he finds it fascinating because he's a guy from New York who's really never experienced that stuff at all. And so it is, it's, it's a totally different world from the world of, of New York or the NFL world or really anything else. I appreciate you sharing that story. Um, and yeah, I know Tammy's sort of fame from, uh, Paul's show, which I've listened to many, many times. And uh, yeah. Phyllis from Mulga's is call uh, killing Colin Coward and basically letting everybody know that the Alabama dynasty uh, continues. By the way, Phyllis from Mulga was correct on that. Um, yes. is, is, in my opinion, is, in my opinion, it's probably one of the three greatest calls to uh, sports talk that I've ever heard. So if you've never heard it that, if you've never heard that, just Google Phyllis from Mulga. Uh, Paul Feinbaum, coward. It's, it, it's uh, no, yeah. I'm I'm letting people who are listening to this know. I know you've heard it, but it is. Uh, oh, it is. Yeah, it is like whatever. Uh, I thought it was just. Us. Yeah. Well, right now it's just three of us. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That is literally like two minutes of like the greatest radio you will ever hear. Um, all right. So here's Laura. Here I want to I want to end on this because this is just like fascinating to me because it's such a. Because uh, one, I don't know how many people know this, and two, it's just really, really interesting just given how good you have to be for this. But um, in reading up on you, after high school, you had offers to join the Nashville and Sarasota Ballet. That's pretty unbelievable. You you, you have to be significantly good to join any kind of city-based ballet. So is that something you did for many, many years, and how close were you to actually making or pursuing that as a profession? Yeah, I was very close to pursuing uh, being a professional ballerina and actually spent the entire summer following my senior year of high school in Nashville, because that's probably the ballet company that I was going to choose. Uh, and then, you know, at the last minute, my my mom is a teacher and, and homeschooled us even for part of our uh schooling, growing up and everything. And, and she went to Clemson. My dad went to Georgia Tech and then Harvard Business School. My parents, you know, education was always very important. And they never put any pressure on me at all, which was kind of amazing if you really think about it. But they were like, okay, if you're going to do this ballet thing, we're going to do it. They, they went all in on it. And then at the last minute, I just sort of started to realize, you know what, I, I need to get an education. And thankfully, I had in-state academic scholarship to the University of Florida and Florida State. I basically flipped a coin, had no rooting interest in Florida because I had grown up in the state of Georgia and my dad had gone to Georgia Tech. So that was really, you know, we went to Clemson football games and Georgia Tech football games. And when I went to Florida, 
the way that I even got into doing this was because of ballet, because I was taking all these ballet classes on my academic scholarship, and I didn't have enough money to to pay for my actual classes that I was supposed to do because I used all the money up, and my parents were like, you know, this is not going to work. you got to find a way to make some extra money. Somebody told me you can make $6 an hour at the on-campus radio station WRUF. So that's how I got into the business, and I was terrible at first and had no idea what I was doing and just uh, worked really hard at it and and moved my way up. But it's funny because had it not been for ballet, and and I really think the thing about ballet that still affects me to this day is that it's it's a level of perfectionism that – you know, you're constantly striving for that you're just not going to be able to get. Like nobody has the the totally perfect turnout or the perfect pointed foot or or whatever it may be. You're trying to you're trying to get to an ideal and and you've got to find ways to creatively get your body there. So hmm. it's similar to being on television because there's part of it that it's that's a performance, but there are also these parts where you're always trying to navigate and make it work for yourself. And I think that experience as a ballet dancer really like affects me still and and I still draw from a lot of it um every day so I miss ballet a lot I'm a a huge fan of the arts a huge fan of of music and um any type of show just through that which is a kind of a total departure from sports but um very thankful for having ballet in my life because I I do think it affected what I would end up doing yeah Misty Copeland she is a baller if you've ever (laughs) uh, seen her uh uh, perform your posture must be sick by the way in terms of being a foreign ballerina so that is one thing that yeah you get you totally uh you know for any of the schmoes like myself who've had to do television at different times like you really just you know you don't know how to sit you're trusting producers or stage managers to tell you so you are probably like the easiest person for them to deal with because you professionally know how to uh you know sort of sit straight make sure your sort of head is up so that's that's one yeah, thing. If nothing else, Laura, ballet, ballet, ballet has, yeah, ballet, ballet has probably hooked you up body movement wise uh, with the camera. So that's actually, you know, a positive, uh, a positive thing there. So ballet did is if, as crazy as it is. Ballet is very helpful when you are talking about uh, uh, Clemson, Alabama, you know, secondaries. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> it's very beneficial. <laughs> Who <knew? laughs> yeah. Tell tell Feinbaum to start taking some uh, ballet now. Let's see where he. Can yeah, go. I've tried to work with uh, him on that because his body movements are not the smoothest. I know I'm not breaking news there, but uh, he, he could use some ballet training. Yeah, listen, we we all could, uh, including uh, this New Yorker slash Canadian at the moment. All right, Laura Rutledge. Laura, you know I've I I almost feel like I need to uh, like take a break because I have to now read your resume and list of all the things you're doing. So I have to prepare for this. It's so long. Laura Rutledge <laughs> is a reporter and host for ESPN in a number of roles, including uh, college foot. She's a reporter on college football, basketball, gymnastics, baseball, softball. I'm sure I've missed some sports. She's the host of the SEC Network's SEC Nation. She's now a co-host. On Get Up, we learned not getting paid any extra cash for that. What a what a trooper! She's a regular on the Paul Feinbaum show. She's hosted Sports Center, uh, and um, and I certainly appreciate her time, Laura. Um, the people who work with you always uh, have great things to say about you, and that to me is usually the standard that I use in terms of uh, um, you know just sort of how to think about a person who's in the business. So 
credit to you. And um, thank you very much for the time. And I wish you nothing but success heading forward. Thanks for joining us today on the Sports Media Podcast. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. All right. My thanks to Laura Rutledge. And now we head for our conversation with Kevin Clark. Kevin Clark is an NFL writer and podcaster for The Ringer. He previously covered the NFL for The Wall Street Journal. He also hosts, he can correct me if I'm wrong on this, but I'm, I'm going to call it a video short, slow news day. And Kevin Clark, <laughs> Kevin Clark joined. I, joined. How would you describe that, Kevin? It's, it's a video something. Yeah, it's a video. It's, it's, it's something. It's on video, and that's, that's all I can describe it as. It, it's a four-minute sort of run through the NFL news and it's slightly talk showy. We have a guest. Um, it's one of the most fun things I do during the week, but it, it kind of defies genre. Yeah, it's great, which is why it's kind of interesting. That's I actually really like. Uh, and again, so just sort of Google slow news day, Kevin Clark, the ringer, if you want to check it out, it's a, uh, um, you know, it's a best live short is where I'm going to put it in the Oscar category, but you can, <laughs> you can, uh, you can make your determination. So, Kevin, the reason um, why I wanted to have you on this podcast is I, I don't think this is an overstatement. And so I'm about to sort of um, kiss your butt a little bit, but it, it is from an honest place. I, you, to me, have um, you've engineered a very unique writing style or sort of content generation style when it comes to NFL stories. And I would sort of say they're a mix of quirky stories, analytically based stories, and access stories. And a lot of the people I read... They might be one of those three, but you're three of those three. I remember reading a piece that you did on um, like Game of Thrones spoilers uh, and how like players – it was like a big thing like in training camp. Like players did not want other players to give it up. I, I really am impressed by just sort of the, the stories and, and, and unique angles that you come up with for the NFL. So that's my long way of um, – of asking you a very simple question, if that ridiculously long-winded answer. How do you do oh, a question? I should say. How do you describe what you do? So, I mean, first of all, I, I appreciate you saying that. I think there's a lot of people who are really versatile in the NFL. Be I'm hugely impressed with you know people like Jenny Barrentis who do this stuff every single week, and, and it's really incredible. Obviously, Peter King. You know, just there's a lot of great NFL writers out there, and my colleagues at the Ringer are all incredible. Um, I think that I, when, when I view a story, I, I, I kind of look at it as, and this is going to sound weird, but you know, I kind of game plan it almost like what a coach would. I just figure out what would be best. So if I'm going into Minnesota and I know I can get Kirk Cousins and Rick Spielman and, and Mike Zimmer, then I can plan for more of an access type story. I can ask about X, Y, and Z. If it's a busy day or I'm only parachuting in for a day, then maybe it's a shorter thing. Some of those quirky stories are by necessity because I couldn't get quarterback, coach, GM, owner. I was only there for a day, and it's, okay, I'm going to get these three guys because I know they all like Game of Thrones. Let's just do a quirky 900-word thing. And so a lot of it is just looking at the situation and figuring out what what the team will give me, what my schedule will give me, and then figuring out what would be best. Do I have a month to work on the story? Or do I have a day? And that that's basically how I determine what the story is going to be. And it can be any range of things within that. But the quirky stuff that was you know, specifically started at the Wall Street Journal, a lot of that was because I just needed to turn around a thousand word story really quickly. And it was the easiest thing to do to get guys to talk about Game of Thrones or Settlers of Catan or, or whatever it is, because that's 
that they would talk about it on, on a moment's notice. And it's really, it's much harder to get them to talk about, you know, their, their zone defense strategy. You're, you're going to need more time for that. I appreciate you answering that. So there's a couple sort of follow-ups with that. First and foremost, did you, was there a certain point that you realized either intentionally or not that you were doing stories that not a lot of other NFL media were doing and that, that could sort of be a calling card for you or if nothing else on a pure base level, make you more marketable as a football journalist. Well, I think that part of it, especially with the journal was just trying to get a footing. You know, we were established as a sports section, I think in 2009 and we're just trying to get our footing on the NFL beat. I replaced a guy named Reed Albergati who went on to basically blow the lid off the Lance Armstrong thing. I was, right. I felt like I was following in really big footsteps and so I was just trying to figure out any niche I could find and, and really how that all sort of came together. I wrote a story in 2014 about how Andrew Luck compliments the guys who, who sack him. And that was really the first viral story I had. And I just realized that it's not necessarily about getting Andrew Luck to say, um, you know, this is how I approach throwing to the tight end. Um, there's just a whole world of stories that I, I just really thought it was by accident. I discovered that nobody was really doing. Hmm. And so I spent about a year and a half just, just doing those stories and figuring out all of the little un- undercover things in each locker room. And also, and then this goes back to, to, to sort of how I approach the stories. I couldn't get a lot of these guys. They, they did not care about the wall street journal. That story that about Andrew Luck, I never spoke with Andrew Luck. Um, I had, I had a handful of those stories in 2014 and 2015 where yeah, teams just didn't care. A lot of teams just didn't even know we had a sports section. So when I would parachute in and say, Hey, I'm doing this, they would kind of laugh me off and give me, you know, 15 minutes with the coach, but it wasn't the same sort of access as an established sports thing. So that's the, you know, it, it, that's, a lot of this stuff happened either by accident or me just sort of realizing there were a couple of little edges that I could get because I, I you know, I was able to travel a lot and I was able to just sort of take advantage of, of what the journal setup was. I want to ask you, before I get into sort of uh, working at the journal, working at the ringer, there's something I want to talk to you about that's sort of a specific of what you have written about, and that's the football analytics revolution. There are there are people sort of the PFF people and many others you've written about they're, they're clearly in the heart or at the center of the analytics revolution but I consider you at the forefront of writers who've written about it and we're ahead of the curve in terms of really identifying what I think the future of the NFL is gonna be so you wrote the sentence where you said the football analytics revolution may not be obvious but it is happening in front of you all the time so I want to ask you um how big a story do you think this is in current day and maybe more importantly how big a story is this going to be over the next 10 years okay so there's a couple of things to unpack with that specific topic so football analytics right now is a fairly big deal in 10 years it's going to be a huge deal because i think that you look at the way a lot of the gms now made their their names is they they had a niche that was basically the salary cap uh mike tannenbaum who's obviously just reassigned was like that howie roseman mickey loomis was like that they were the young guy 
who were like, oh, I understand the salary cap. And GMs didn't understand it. Owners didn't understand it. And they were able to climb up. And so what's happening now is there's a wave of young people being hired in the front offices because they're the young people who understand analytics. And in five, six, seven years, they will be the GMs. It's going to be really hard for an owner to make a GM an analytics guy right now because they're just not a pipeline for it. You, you have to hire someone who only has one, two or three years of experience just because they haven't developed the pipeline for analytics based front office guys in general. There are obviously are exceptions, but it's, I, I think that we're going to see a huge push like we saw in baseball after sort of the money ball phenomenon. Um, we're going to see a lot of that. I think that the, you know, as I wrote, there's some subtle things that no one's picking up on. Um, the thing that I, that just blew my mind when I heard about it was the team that runs plays to the opposite side of the field from their opponent's bench because they yeah. figured out using data that, that it was, it was tiring out the defensive linemen. It's that kind of stuff. Um, there were a couple of teams that basically gave me, access to their analytics um not i not like a login or anything but but i was able to just sort of view uh on computer screens what everything looks like and if coaches and gms are going to use this data it's going to be an absolute game changer because there's so much of it and i don't even think you know i i i've told the story before but i remember when they started going with miles per hour for the receivers i asked an owner i said you know are we going to get to a point where you start saying, hey, X, Y, and Z, you have to take a pay cut because you used to run 20 miles per hour and now you run 18 miles per hour? And they're like, no, we'd never, we don't even give any thought to this stuff because we're so archaic and so outdated that we, don't, we haven't even thought about it. And so I think in five years, you're going to start hearing about a case like that. Then it gets into an ethical thing. Then it gets into you know, what, when the union gets involved. Is the union going to try to, to battle you know, if someone wants to take a pay cut because they had this data? I think there are so many just things out there we're not thinking about in the football analytics space, it's going to be really fascinating in the next five, ten years. And that's fascinating. Do you um, do you like the idea of a wins above replacement metric or a war metric for the NFL that becomes sort of a uniform way to put a valuation on every player? I think it's really hard. You know, PFF has done this, and I had talks about them with them about this, and I found some of the insights really, really fascinating. You know, Michael Thomas was the most valuable non-quarterback last year because first downs are so important. And Bobby Wagner was more important than Aaron Donald this year because they figured out that you can essentially game plan Aaron Donald out of a play by passing really, really quickly. The Bears did that in 1.5 seconds uh, against Aaron Donald. They would get the rid of the ball in 1.5 seconds. And Bobby Wagner is all over the field. You can't game plan him out, right? And so I think what you learn when you do a wins above replacement thing is what matters in football and what is actually valuable from an analytical standpoint. I think it's going to be really, really hard for just to sit there and rank positions one through, you know, or players one through 300. I think that that might be a, a bridge too far right now. There's just so many subtle nuances that are different with, with, with different positions. But I do think you can find out we're going to find out more about the value of players and who can be taken out of the game, who can't, that kind of thing. I think that's what's going to be fascinating uh, as far as the next couple of years. One of the things that's clear, Kevin, is that there's a huge audience for an analytical writing in baseball, or at least baseball mm -hmm. writers who use analytics. Um, I'm starting to see that in hockey now. Obviously, I work at a place, The Athletic, where they um, they have a number of writers who are really, really new metric, new, you know, sort of – Numerically, either sound or 
uh, numerically first. And it's, you know, this is not my specialty, but it's really interesting to sort of read these advanced metrics into statistics in hockey. Where do you think, do you think there will be a audience for this kind of writing? Obviously the data, the data is going to happen. We're going to have this, but do you think, how how do I phrase it? So traditional NFL fans are so used to reading, I think a, a certain style of writing, um, you know, whether it's Peter King or somebody else that we haven't seen the kind of stuff we've seen in baseball. Do you think, from your experience, given that you're in the middle of this, is there an audience for this kind of writing, or is there an anal- is there an audience that really is craving football analytics? Well, I mean, I, I'm never going to write a whole lot about football analytics during the season. I'm probably, you know, I think there were, I think I had three pieces this year that were much bigger that sort of dove into what it's going to mean for the sport and had some nuggets within that that, that I felt were important. I think that when you look at the analytics of the sport, I think people, if you can tell them something they don't know, they're always going to read it. Hmm. And I, I sort of, I don't understand a lot of the analytics, quite frankly. I, I don't understand. I, I'm not uh, some of the, uh, the, you know, I'm not fluent in an R. I, the, the stuff that these guys are really smart at, I couldn't do that. If I, if, if a team tried to hire me to be their analytics guy, I would be out of the building within a month. But what, I try to do is just find, and this is something I, I've seen Michael Lewis talk about a lot. And I'm, I'm, you know, trying to do an extremely bad Michael Lewis impression sometimes. And he basically, when he looks at a story, he wants to find the one or two or three people who can explain everything to you and then just ride them throughout the story. And that's what I try to do with analytics. So what I try, I try to identify a handful of people who can not only explain to me, exactly what's happening in the analytics revolution, you know, a football idiot, basically, but also the reader. And in that story, there are a couple of people, someone like Matt Manicharian, who was a scout and is now an analytics guy, or Warren Sharp. I mean, like, even something as simple with Warren Sharp as saying, like, you know, one of the things we're not looking at enough is just avoiding third down entirely. Well, I'm around football a lot. And it's not something I hear a lot, except from you know analytically inclined coaches like Sean Payton, to to have essentially the solution to offense be be so aggressive on first and second down, you're never in third down. It's very simple. It's a talking point. You can tell your friends to be smarter at a party with it, and that's sort of how I um, how I view those stories. Is if you can teach people something they do not know, they will read it. Full stop. All right, a couple more here. I know you are in New Orleans. It's been a long night, so I won't keep you too much longer. How have you found? Um, how have you found your access when you say you work for the Ringer? This is always—I mean, it's a very little inside baseballish, but it was always interesting to me. Yeah. Uh, or it's always interesting to me how people react to the publication's name. For example, before I worked at Sports Illustrated, I was the same schmo uh, uh, that I was when I worked at Sports Illustrated, but there was a very, very big difference. The second I got there in terms of how quickly my phone calls were returned, how people viewed me because I was now working there. The Ringer is a new publication, but a, a, but a new outlet that obviously has, I think, a lot of notice and respect in the marketplace. At the same time, it's not, it's not the Washington Post and the New York Times in terms of uh, people are going to know it throughout sports. So when you say you're from the Ringer um, calling up somebody in the NFL, or at least maybe when you first started, what was that like? Was there any difference, or was there a major difference between that and the Wall Street Journal? I, I had almost the exact same access at the Wall Street Journal as I did the Ringer. I, I would say if there's one difference, it's the ownership. 
there were a lot of owners who wanted to be in the Wall Street Journal and didn't necessarily care about the ringer. And and one thing I will clarify on that is I don't if I had no access to owners, I I I wouldn't jump off a bridge. I mean, I I just I it, they 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 a lot of them wanted to talk about you know long term strategy or business or whatever. And I would certainly take those interviews. Um, but it's not sort of my bread and butter and it's not, and, and the fact that I don't get as many as I used to is not a, a deal breaker, um, for me, but I would say that with the advantage for the ringer is I'm telling deeper stories and longer stories and stories with multimedia components where when I sit down, when I talk to a team or talk to a quarterback and say, I want to do this, they understand what a ringer story is. I, I, I didn't. There were a lot of people, again, the readership was different at the journal. I would say it was more top-down. It was ownership, uh, a little bit of GMs. But at the Ringer, a lot of players read this stuff, um, a lot of, quite frankly, coaches, I think, and, and more front office people. So it's a little bit different. They understand sort of what we're trying to accomplish when I put in for access. I haven't – I've, I've noticed – no drop off, um, and 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 for many teams, I'm getting better access than I did. But that that might also just be because I, I know them better because I've been doing this now for uh, six years. It's interesting. So why, when you made that decision, Kevin, to leave the Wall Street Journal for the Ringer, um, one, how did it come about, and two, why did you make that decision? Yeah. So I mean, I got an email from Bill uh, Tuesday of Championship Week in 2016, and. You know, the one thing that I don't think you can really gloss over is I am a massive, massive, massive Bill Simmons fan. And when you get the opportunity to work at the Ringer and with people who are just awesome, people like Sean Fantasy, Chris Ryan, Bill himself, Mallory Rubin, Juliet, you know, Robert Mays, my colleague, this is it's it's a murderer's row. And I wanted to fit into that. The Wall Street Journal was amazing. Um, it was, you know, some of the best times of my life there. Uh, but I just felt like the ringer could build a lot more around you. Something like Slow News Day or even a podcast twice a week with such a dedicated listenership, that wasn't going to happen at the Wall Street Journal. They were not going to move everything around to make to make NFL coverage a priority. I felt like they did a lot with, with sort of this, the stories that I was able to do, and, and there was some, some promotion there. But I felt like the ringer just built an apparatus where when you have a good story and you want to t- tell a story, they're going to help you do that. And so I didn't really think too much about it. I mean, I've had a number of opportunities over the years to go different places, and, and I, I, I really don't consider ever – I didn't really consider leaving the Wall Street Journal um, very seriously. And once I talked to the ringer, I, I didn't seriously consider doing anything else but going to work for the ringer. You, uh, you were New York-based for the Wall Street Journal, correct, and now you're Los Angeles-based? That's correct, yeah. Have you found the sports reader, sports fan to be different in Los Angeles versus New York? And if so, how? Hmm, that's a great question. I would say that it's hard to tell because New York, you're you're constantly in front of people and you're constantly ducking in the bars that happen to be like a Virginia bar. And it's like, oh, there's a Virginia fan base. I'm going <laughs> to talk to them for two minutes. And so you get more you know, feedback on what people think about sports. In L.A., it's a lot less concentrated. You really – I mean, I don't I, – I really don't see any Rams fans, Richard. Like, I, I don't even know where they – they have a fan base. People show up and all that stuff. We have one Rams fan at the office, Riley McAtee. But I, I just don't ever see any football fans – in in Los Angeles to where you get that instant feedback. So I think that's more of just a a product of it not being, you know, a literal island, you know, like, like Manhattan. And so I just think that there's, there's, 
it's just more spread out. You don't see people. You don't get the instant feedback. So it's hard to tell. It's obviously much more laid back. Yeah, you know, it's interesting you say that because um, it's reflective when it comes to the television viewership and ratings, Kevin, as I know you know. Los Angeles is the number two media market. By households alone, it should be a juggernaut when it comes to NFL games, but it's not. Um, It's not in relation to what it should be given the – number of households in Los Angeles. So, you know, sort of anecdotally, you not seeing a ton of Rams fans does, uh, doesn't surprise me. And it, it is makes for an interesting situation for the league, given obviously that they have multiple teams in, um, in Los Angeles. All right, the final uh, couple here. One of the things that the Ringer obviously does with a lot of its, uh, its uh, writers, its talent like yourself, is, you know, you do podcasts, you also do video. Um, you seem to have taken to that. I don't know if you're a natural ham, Kevin, or not, but you seem to really enjoy being on camera, being podcasting. Did that um, was that natural for you, or did it take a little bit of time to sort of get used to that? You weren't just going to be someone that people know of with your words, but now people were going to see you on screen. People were going to hear your voice. So one of the great things about the Ringer is they they put you in position to succeed. I have a producer named Jason Gallagher who is a legitimate genius, and he's the one that does desktop. He's the one that does Slow Newsday, Worst Picks, a lot of the Ringer originals. And he, it, it, it's a situation where I just get on camera and go, and if I look good, it's because of him. Hmm. And so the way I view, and, and become, not just him, but the, the, it's just the Ringer apparatus in general. They, 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 they're very, very good at making things look good and, and look authentic. And I think that, you know, when I think about podcasting and video, I think that I view it as marketing for my writing. I mean, I, I'm always going to be a writer. I'm going to be one of these guys who's like 98 and writing for like my retirement home newsletter. Um, <laughs> I, 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 just, I just really like writing. And it, when I view video or view podcasting, all of which I take very, very seriously and work really, really hard at, but I, I, I'm hoping that if someone sees Slow News Day, they're also going to go and read my story about uh, Patrick Mahomes and his long toss that I spent, you know, three weeks on. Like, it, it's, I, I view the writing first, and I'll probably always view the writing first. That might be a bit outdated, but I'm always going to have some writing component. And my hope then is that people see me somewhere else because maybe they're not going to click on, you know, 3,000 words about Patrick Mahomes, and they will after they see some sort of video component. Make sure you do a uh, some kind of calm on a war evaluation of all those people, like all the workers at the retirement home. I want you to rate like the uh, <laughs> person cleaning the beds versus the uh, cook. By the way, because the ringer is so NBA uh, obsessed and centric, have, do you do anything NBA, or are you are you purely in the NFL part of the ringer? I think there's probably room for me to be in the in, in the NBA part of it at some point. I think that you know I, I'm I'm sort of. One of the things that I really like to do is I don't feel comfortable just writing an NBA column if I don't know anything about it. I watch every Orlando Magic game. I think I have a good handle on the league, but it would take me a little bit to get up to speed where I feel comfortable writing about another sport. I've written a little bit about soccer, written a little bit about golf. Um, I would need to dive headfirst and just become an expert to the point I feel comfortable. That wouldn't, you know, I, it wouldn't take that long. But if if my editor said to me tomorrow, hey, do you want to write about James Harden? Uh, I would I would 
put a hold on that for a little bit and, <laughs> and try to build out a bigger piece. Yeah, the ringer's got like 15 people though who can write about Harden. You'll be you'll be all right. Yeah, we're good. We're good on James. Harden. You're good on that. All right. So um, before I I do the cheap thing, Kevin, and just I, I realize you're probably going to write on this, but I do want to just get your top line thoughts on what you think is going to happen in the Super Bowl, Kevin. If you're on Twitter, by Kevin Clark, and you if you uh, uh, if you're a fan of The Ringer or if you haven't read The Ringer, you can certainly Google Kevin Clark and The Ringer, and you can see all his work um, on his Twitter feed. He has some of the recent stories that he's done. All of these are really good. Uh, I cited the Analytics Revolution piece. He's got a story on Patrick Mahomes uh, and sort of how his like kind of unique passing style, which is kind of incredible. One on Deshaun Watson. I think if I remember right, uh, something on uh, people who've caught – touchdowns from drew Brees, maybe and then a yeah, people caught one touchdown from one touchdown from drew Brees, right and then um this is actually really cool very good nfl story about um how the quarterbacks in the league that teams have paid a ton of money on a ton of money for kirk cousins matt ryan aaron Rodgers, they're not in the playoffs while the teams like the rams the chiefs uh etc texans like where their quarterbacks were not taking uh, like a gigantic piece of the cap had moved forward, so that was kind of uh, that was kind of interesting in terms of building contenders around young starters. So check out Kevin's piece on that curse. I'm looking at here the curse of the salary cap beating quarterback. All right, Kevin. Again, I know you're in New Orleans. I know this just happened. I know you're going to have to do a ton of evaluation. But what what is your sort of top line instinct right now about what we might see with the Patriots and the Rams? My guess is Patriots by a score. I mean, I think that there's, there's still a very strange voodoo thing where even when the Patriots are the better team, they always play close Super Bowls. I can never really explain that. Um, but I just think that they're, they're kind of equal in talent uh, from a, from a top line standpoint, I think coach and quarterback are, are obviously closely aligned, but then the Rams are a little bit deeper in certain spots. And I think that Belichick is going to be able to game plan that the Patriots win on little edges. They win on being the least flawed team at all times. It's going to be a fascinating matchup because the Rams are quote unquote all in, they have a deeper roster, but I think that the, the Patriots sort of game plan of, of knowing exactly what to do and how to play these more talented teams. I think that that's, that's going to be the matchup to watch, and they do it, and they probably win by one score. Good of you to do this, Kevin. Kevin Clark is a – do you even have a title, a, like senior writer or staff writer? What are the ringers' titles? Staff writer. Staff writer? No, it's, staff it's, writer. Yeah. Uh, I, at SI, I don't need a fancy title. I was going to say, but yeah, I know. At SI back in the day, there were too many writers who were very concerned about being senior or staff. All right. Uh, Kevin Clark is a uh, is a writer, staff writer, for The Ringer, specializing in the NFL. You can check out his work on that site. Follow him on Twitter. And again, he consistently is writing, in my opinion, just really, really interesting stuff that I'm not seeing elsewhere. So uh, when he prints or publishes a new story, when The Ringer has a new story, um, I'm always quick to read it. Uh, I, I've really big admirer of what he's doing. Uh, Kevin, thanks so much again. I know it's been a long weekend. Uh, safe travels from New Orleans to Los Angeles, and thanks so much for joining us on the Sports Media Podcast. Thank you so much, Richard. All right, back in the studio. My thanks to Laura Rutledge and Kevin Clark for two interesting conversations. Uh, thanks, as always, to Lou Pellegrino for putting this podcast together. Uh, previous uh, sports media podcasts include uh, John Oran for a discussion on ESPN's interest in the Super Bowl, Austin Murphy and Daniel Dale, uh, James Andrew Miller, who is a regular on this podcast, Chelsea James and Bruce Feldman, Chelsea James of the Washington Post, 
now covering the uh, 2020 campaign. Uh, Tom Berducci, Howard Beck, Rebecca Lobo, LaChina Robinson, uh, Rachel Nichols, Candace Parker, Jamel Hill, Renee Young. Please head over to the Sports Media with Richard Deitch page on uh, either Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or Google Play or wherever you get podcasts and uh, check it out. And if you like this stuff, please leave us a review and ratings. That's, uh, that's how it stays. All right. For everybody at Cadence 13, for Lou Pellegrino, this is Richard Deitch. We'll see you again on the Sports Media with Richard Deitch podcast. <laughs>